The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Can cockpit position really make as big a difference as Lewis Hamilton claims? What's wrong with F1's red flag rules? And how is downforce measured? Gary Anderson tackles those questions and more. Welcome to another edition of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. While the big talking points from the Australian Grand Prix itself were the accidents and restart, there are also plenty of good technical storylines for us to get our teeth into. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, who has forgotten more about F1 than most people will ever know. Unfortunately, he's held on to plenty of that knowledge too. So, welcome, Gary. How's tricks? Yeah, tricks are good. Um, yeah, it was an interesting race, I think, in Australia. I must admit, as the season's sort of starting to unfold, um, you know, we are seeing that the the competition level between the, the Red Bull and uh, obviously the Aston Martin is pretty good, but Red Bull still have that upper hand. But, you know, Mercedes did a good job. They, they came through there and, you know, podium positions is not bad. The qualifying was good, but I think it might just have been a little bit uh, circuit dependent. So we'll probably get into that a bit later, Ed. But, yeah, it was an interesting race, let's say. Yeah, well, there's plenty to uh, delve into on that. But as always, we'll start off with giving you a free choice of topics. So what do you want to open up with on this edition? Well, as you know, to be honest, regulations in general, um, but, you know, the red flag situation, uh, safety cars, um, you know, virtual safety cars, all that stuff, really, it, it does need it does need a bit of sorting out. You know, it's, it's really is wrong because everything seems to be a new experience. Now, it's a new experience for the viewer. Um the biggest problem is it seems to be a new experience for the teams as well. Nobody seems to really have a handle on what will happen at a certain time. Uh, we have all these uh, safety rules, and they're, they're very, very important. But there is a better way, I think, of making sure that everybody is aware of what will happen in a certain scenario. Um, I think, you know, if I take just, just qualifying, for example, over the time we've had such a lot of times whenever the red flag came out and somebody lost a lap, now, qualifying is about something. It's about using the set of tires you've got to the maximum. So, to be honest, if a, if, a, if a red flag has to come out during qualifying, it only has to start at the start finish line and go round to the accident, so that anybody on a lap after the accident doesn't get impeded by it, and they can finish the lap up to the to the to the finish line. Because at the minute, well, you know, we saw a couple of years ago in, in Monaco with with um, Perez, and you know, when he spun and hit the barrier. If you, we've seen it many times actually, to be honest, even Michael Schumacher did it, but if you end up with a situation where you've done a good lap and you're, um, you know, really unsure you can ever better that lap, then the best thing to do is spin in an obvious place. Maybe not damage your car, but just spin and make sure the car's in the, in the, in the way so that at the end of the day they throw the red flag. And then the other people that are on good laps suffer for it, and I think that's wrong. So from my point of view, throw the red flag at the start-finish line. That allows drivers that are on a good lap past the scene of the incident to um, finish that lap. So that would at least cure that problem by 50%, you know, even more than that probably. And then again, and you know, come any, any condition where safety is required, we do have a virtual safety car, which the minute something goes wrong should come out because that means that the, the, the driver's you know, hold position as such. Um, then you've got a second or two to evaluate the situation. If necessary, the safety car can come out. Um, and if really necessary, the red flag can come out. So everybody knows the procedure. There'll be three stages of the procedure. Um, and at each of those stages, the, the pit call is a little bit dubious as to what you can do, to be honest. Um, you know, 
I think it's wrong that you can get a free a free tire change <coughs> during um, a red flag because you know there is a lot of people that just get you know get out of get out of jail so I suppose you might call it by getting that uh, free tire ch- change. For sure, you shouldn't be able to change your compound um, during a during a red flag. That that's without doubt. And you and you don't you haven't complied with the regulation then of using two compounds if it happens. Um, so that that would be my first thing to do. To be honest, just make sure if you've got soft tires on or hard tires or whatever they are, the tires you put on have to be the same um, at at the minimum. And uh, if you still have to do the t- the the tire stop then to change because of the two compound rules, so be it. So that would be my first thing because obviously it's very difficult to know um, about debris and tire cuts and stuff as to eliminate the change of tires completely. So make sure you just put the same tires on. The FIA, Formula One, need to really look closely at the regulations and to see whether they're really there for the the safety and for the for the race as opposed to for the show. It's getting a little bit NASCAR-y in my book here and there, where especially if you never know what's going to happen, there has to be a black and white set of regulations that happens, you know, and it's so easy. It's just virtual safety car, safety car, red flag. Those are the order that, that it will happen in. So everybody knows that this might happen next, you know. So uh, anyway, that's my rant for the day. Um, I don't think it would have changed the outcome that much of the of the race in, in Australia, but it's a good highlight. Three races into a 23-race season. Somebody somewhere must take notice of what's happening and not just put the blinkers on. One of the other things that came up as well, just to give you the opportunity to extend the rant, is obviously they had that attempt at a two-lap dash to the flag from a standing restart. Obviously, it's quite late in the day, slightly cooler temperatures, so there were problems with getting the tyres up to temperature, getting the brakes up to temperature. Obviously, a number of people uh, misjudged the turn one braking, not just Carlos Sainz, but Logan Sargent hit the back of Nick de Vries. Pierre Gasly went off. How much of that is just down to driver's misadventure and how much of that can you say, well, actually, just having one quick formation lap at right at the end of the day on tyres that won't necessarily be your first choice ones. Obviously, they pretty much, most of them would have had their best condition soft tyres, so not so different to a normal race start because that is challenging, isn't it? You can get the surface temperature on the tyres to where you need it, but it's the compound temperature that's key, isn't it? And building that up is what actually makes a tyre work. So it is it is a little bit of a challenge to do that. Yes, a big challenge, to be honest. Um, you know, again, you have to look at it as the spectacle against the race you know what what is the deci- why are those decisions made i've never been a fan of having uh, grid restarts after a, a situation because at the end of the day the drivers have worked hard to get themselves to a position in the race why should you throw that all away and the grid restart is the most um vulnerable type of condition to be honest you know you, you're not you're not in control of a situation of everybody else you're in control of yourself but as you saw it's, it's very difficult to get everything right again and these cars, you know, they don't like the, that grid start. So in my book, you should have one grid start because it's interesting at the beginning of the race and then it unfolds during the race. After that, there should be um, processional starts. You know, at least, you know, in line for sure, that's fine. That's not a problem like we do behind the safety car. So from my point of view, I don't think you should ever, ever be on the grid again. The, if there has to be a red flag, then they head out of the pit lane behind the safety car, do one lap maximum, to allow you to get the brakes warm. Um, One lap maximum behind the safety car after a red flag. Safety car pulls in and you have a processional start in the order that you've elected to be the correct order after the red flag. Because uh, I think it's it's wrong to come around and sit on the grid 
uh, you know, that late in the day as well. We we want we want the race cars to to race. We want them to finish races. Closing them all up behind a safety car means that you've lost all the advantage that you've worked your whole you know thirty, forty, fifty laps for. And in its own right, that's wrong. Um, but it's it's the way it is. That's that's really why the virtual safety car was brought into play because at least that made everybody stay stationary and the gap stayed more or less the same. But even those sort of situations need to be looked at. Um, as I say, I think the change of compound or tire during um, the a red flag situation, even during a, a um, even during a, a, a virtual safety car or a safety car, it's the luck of the draw. And and the luck then, yeah, you can say it will it'll balance out during the season, but it doesn't necessarily. So the luck of the draw is that you you, you latch onto it. Um, somebody can just pet before it, as we've seen, uh, and then they, they don't get that luck. So at the end of the day, I think if you, if you pit during a, an interlude in the race as such, it'd be a virtual safety car, safety car, or red flag, you have to fit the same tyres you got on the car. You can't get a free a freebie for it. Because we want we want the best result from the race. We want the comp- competition on the track and not competition in the pit lane. You know, We've had that with refueling and it's it yeah it's great it's lovely to see it but it's not it's not what it should be about the racing is about racing from when the, the red lights go out to the checkered flag on the track that's when racing should take place um so yeah i i could carry this rant on all day to be honest but it's it's just the whole regulation thing i mean even the you know going back going down to the 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 cars doing slow laps and you know on some circuits very very dangerous especially in qualifying doing slow laps or even in practice you know, to try and get the tyres working correctly or incorrectly or whatever you want to do, because there's so much of that these days. And Australia was a typical example of that, where the tyres would last longer than one lap in qualifying. So there was fast lap, slow lap, fast lap, slow lap. And people are tripping up over each other. And, you know, that's got to be eliminated. And it's so easy to do. We have, it's all there, all the technology, even just the, the three the three um, circuit sections, you know, just add a percentage onto each of them. So, so from the... The first section is from the pit exit to to wherever, and you add you know the time the car will take to get there. Just put a percentage on that for your outlap, so you you can lose a little bit of time in that section. Then in the middle section, you can lose less time because that's whenever you're starting to need to get up to speed. And in the last section, then you you more or less can't lose any time, just you know a small percentage. But it's so easy to do, and it's so easy for it to be shown that it's being done it makes it for the viewer it makes it so much better because at the minute people are just stopping all over the bloody place and you're going to end up you know you're going to end up somebody's going to get hurt and it isn't far away from get, from somebody getting hurt right now yeah, and you saw how absurd it got in practice when the gps went down on friday and you had cars almost driving into each other all over the place which admittedly wouldn't happen if drivers knew the gps was down but they weren't getting the warning so they just assumed they were clear so yeah there's an endless list of these things f1's been in a bit of a mess with such regulations for quite some time now and i imagine it's going to be a topic that crops up again in the future on this podcast unfortunately well the big problem is the more technology you use like the gps the more the more open you are to to a failure uh, so that you know when it was like right the driver you have to make your own space on the track don't hold anybody up get on with it that was okay but now you're you're sitting in the car relying on somebody giving you a call from from somewhere to say, hang on a minute or two, there's a car coming up behind you. You know, make sure you stay over to the left or stay over to the right or whatever. When you've got that technology and you're sitting there waiting for it, it is gonna it is gonna go wrong at some point in time. It will go wrong.
Well, let's get on to our main topic now, which is all about Mercedes. They had something of a mini revival in Australia, but perhaps the most interesting thing that came out of its weekend was Lewis Hamilton's complaint about the cockpit location. I'll just read what he said on Thursday. We sit closer to the front wheels than all the other drivers. Our cockpit is too close to the front. When you're driving, you feel like you're sitting on the front wheels, which is one of the worst feelings to feel when you're driving a car. If you were driving your car at home and put the wheels right underneath your legs, you would not be happy when you're approaching the roundabouts. So what that does is it just really changes the attitude of the car and how you perceive its movements, and it makes it harder to predict compared to when you're further back and you're sitting closer, more centre. It's just something I've really struggled with. Now, Gary, you wrote an excellent article that ran on the race website, which we will put a link to in the description. But from the many volumes of Racing Driver Book of Excuses, this is an unusual one. So what actually are the real technical explanations for all of this? Well, it is an unusual one, but it's, it's probably you know quite true. The biggest thing is that what you've got to do is realise that the, the current regulations don't allow you to deviate very much. Um, in the past, you could deviate a huge amount. You know, the drivers were sitting there with their feet holding up the front wing, to be honest. So it's, um, it's, it's a very, very small window of opportunity. And I don't know, I haven't worked it all out of, with the cars, but, you know, you're probably talking about maximum of, of 20 centimetres or something like that. And the biggest thing is, yes, I agree with them. You know, I've, I don't know how many people out there have driven a fork truck or it's all the steering's at the back. You know, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very strange, I suppose you might call it. But in a racing car, you're sitting in it and you, you feel the car from its uh, how it loads up and how instantly it loads up the tyres. Now, when you turn the steering wheel, you immediately load up the front tyre. You, know, you, you get it to its slip angle so that the front tyre grips. Depending upon the steering input rate, the front tyre grips in reality before the rear tyre because the rear tyre, the car has to slide that little bit to, get the, to generate the, the slip angle in the rear tyre. And when you get the slip angle to the maximum the tyre design slip angle is, then that's whenever you get the ultimate grip from it. I think what Lewis is saying is he he can't feel that between the front and rear axle that you know you have to you have to have confidence that the rear's moving but you have to have confidence that the rear will stop moving when the tire slip angle builds up. So you just uh, you're a little bit in the in the lap of the gods for that little bit of time. But you know Lewis has been around for a lot a lot of time. He's had cars that had a bit of oversteer. He's had cars that had lots of understeer. You know, he's driven many many balanced cars. And again, you know, he says these things, and then he goes out in in, um, in Melbourne and does a you know a very good job, to be honest. So it's all about the 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 setup of the car and and the given circuit as to you know what it what it demands. I don't think it's, his problem is so much in the in the fact that he's sitting forward that little bit because. You know, George Russell's driving the, the same car. Yes, George Russell's a bit taller, so he's probably more um, compact than the car. But, you you know, where the headrest is, the thickness of the headrest, the driver's head sitting and the driver's bum, that's that's the same place as, as, uh, as Lewis Hamilton sits. You know, George's feet might be a bit more crushed or his ne- knees might be a bit more bent. But at the end of the day, you know, the cockpit opening, the position of that headrest and seat back is, is defined in the regulations. So... George is sitting in the same place. Now, one of the things George has said is he's, you know, he, this is one of the best cars he's ever driven other than the, the 2020 car when he drove it. And I agree with that. That's, that's the one asset that George has. He's coming from a Williams that, you know, with all the best respect in the world to, to Williams over the years he was there, was not by any means a good car to, to a car that in Mercedes' eyes is, is not very good. In George's eyes, it's like, you know, gold dust. Um, 
So he's just getting on with it and trying to get the best out of that car because that's all he's done his whole career with Williams is getting the best out of that car. Whereas Lewis is still looking for that car that's got half a second on everybody else. He wants that car that you know he had in 2014, 15, 16 or whatever. That, you know, in theory, you hit the ground with it and you had a half second cushion immediately. Those days have gone. Other people have got better. The grid is closing up. And um, at the end of the day, you know, it is, it's not easy. It's a big job in Formula One now to be competitive. They've just got to look closely at Aston Martin because Aston Martin have done a good job and half of the Aston Martin car, the whole back end, is more or less a Mercedes back end. So all that stuff at the back of the car and all how they, you know, how they can put the diffuser around the gearbox, etc., 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 is all more or less the same. And it's got the same power delivery, it's got the same engine package, you know, all of that stuff is the same. So they know about how, the, you know, the, the cars deployed uh, the electrical power, and they can compare that against the Aston Martin. Forget comparing it to the Red Bull, as I say, because the Red Bull is in a slightly different league at this point in time. Just compare it to, to the Aston Martin, see where you're wrong, see where you're bad at, and get yourself as good as possible, because it is tough. And so Lewis needs to stop, in my opinion, looking for excuses, focus on the fact that the job is huge, and that you need to work on the setup of your car and every individual track to get the best out of it, and not take these wild gambles and setup that he seems to say he he does. I mean, we don't know we're on the outside, but he always seems to, you know, like after I think it was. Uh, Saudi Arabia was saying that you know George locked in locked in on his setup and it was a better setup than Lewis had and one thing or another like that and that's you know that's not right he has the same opportunity as George Russell has to do it but George as I say by coming from a a very poor car as such to the Mercedes is is he thinks the things you know it's it's fantastic but it's just one of those sort of situations Lewis just needs to knuckle down and realise that he hasn't got that half second gap anymore others have done a better job. And until you start working positively to get the best out of the car you've got, you, you will always struggle with that a little bit. But but looking at the the wider car concepts and the role the cockpit positioning plays, obviously the Red Bull cockpit is further back, not by a gargantuan margin, but it, it, it's significant. Obviously, you're able to have a look at some comparative side on. So it will have an influence on the architecture of the car. Obviously, you said closer to the front wheel, so maybe... It, does that impact the rest of the car so there's less opportunity aero-wise to get your airflow to the front of the underfloor and to feed it in there and around the side pods and around the floor edges better? Is this one of the things that actually might need to change to unlock some more performance potential kind of independently of whether Hamilton likes the, the dynamic feel of it? Well, I think you have to um, you have to look at why. I think at the end of the day, the, the, the weight distribution as well, front to rear axle, is very well defined. It's got about 1% of movement you can do, or one a little bit. So, you, you know, you can't get wildly different than that. And that was done because they didn't want people having to get a real advantage by building a car that had a lot of weight in the front axle or a lot of weight in the rear axle, especially at the time when Pirelli were going through bringing in new tyres. And, um, you know, obviously if we look at the, the zero side pod, part which is the visual concept we keep talking about you know they can't package all that cooling system that they need into that car without other compromises under the body that we don't see so i imagine that their fuel tank is narrower probably longer than the red bull for example um because they've got radiator packages and radiator cooling and around the front of the engine at the back of the monocoque um, and if that's so, it's 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 not a five-minute job to change all that, and it's a very expensive job to change all that. So I don't see that that driver position and being rectified. 
I think it would be very, very tough to rectify it if, if what I think is in, in around the front of the engine and the back of the chassis is, is there. Um, because you have, to, you have to position cooling systems somewhere. And it might not be you know, as big a radiator package as the Red Bull have because of technology or whatever, but, but it's still there. So it, it's a, the, you know, the, the position of the driver is about getting the weight distribution right um, and putting all that stuff in around it. So I don't think that you know, you're going to end up with it being able to be rectified very quickly. Changing the side pod visually um, can, can change the, the aerodynamics on, the, on that surface out there. But if, if Lewis really has a problem with his positioning, then I think he's stuck with it for this year for sure. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. When it comes to the design of a Formula One car, obviously something you've overseen many of it in your time, how frustrating is that? driver packaging challenge obviously in an ideal world you'd have no driver in there that's always the joke about adrian newey isn't it who particularly in his early days tended to be ultra aggressive with how much space the drivers have so you have kind of a van capelli not fitting in latent houses back in the day when he had sort of a tiny tiny steering wheel and, and and that kind of thing how do you approach that obviously it's a necessary evil but obviously you're trying to package a driver as well as get something that works for the architecture of your car works dynamically so how big a process actually is that nowadays so so much easier than it was you know 30 years ago um 30 years ago to be honest you you could get away with a lot of stuff 40 years ago you could do anything i suppose you could say it but now so so much um uh tighter constraints on the cockpit the cockpit opening the cockpit positioning the angle of the seat back the length of the cockpit from a certain point in the seat back to where the front bulkhead has to go you know, all of that stuff is defined black and white so you have this you know we used to have a sort of driver mannequin that you could bend him any way you wanted and you would put him into the car and try and and you know try and crush him up a bit so you made it a bit smaller um but, you know, at the end of the day, he couldn't sit there like that. So the regulations that are in place right now means that a tall driver, and I'm not saying a hugely tall driver, because we know George Russell still, you know, has a, is a little bit compact in there, especially with the size of his feet. Um, but the, 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 the layout of the cockpit is defined. So all you need to do is comply with that. Um, and to be honest, then any driver will fit in fairly well. Um, if you're above six foot, six foot one you might start to you have to be squeezed that fraction and i think that's a regulation from my opinion that the, the fia should for at least for 2026 or whatever when the regulations change again you know another few centimeters out in here and there wouldn't do any harm might give me a chance to come back as a as a racing driver sometime maybe not um but anyway you know uh, the thing is about taking that complete section that complete shape you can move that back and forward in the in the, in the car that little bit no, and obviously Mercedes have elected to to put that forward, whereas Red Bull have elected to put that rearwards. The only thing it does do um, is the gap on the Mercedes, the gap between the front wheel and the side of the chassis would be a fraction smaller because the the chassis gets wider the further back you go, and that's relative to the cockpit opening. So blah blah blah. So that gap from the front wheel to the chassis uh, would be fractionally smaller on the Mercedes than it would be on the Red Bull. 
ideally you want that gap to be as big as possible. But again, it's you're talking millimeters there. You're not talking you're not talking more than that. And whether that has a significant difference or not, I, I wouldn't like to say, but, it, but there would be millimetres of difference in the wrong direction, I suppose you might say. Yeah, and obviously, in terms of the exact difference in the positioning, it was difficult with the photographs. We had to be millimetre perfect, but we reckon it was about 21, 22 centimetres, perhaps further back, Verstappen's head was compared to Hamilton's, just to give people a, an idea of that. But in general terms, have you had any particular challenges in the past with fitting drivers in? There's there's one I always remember that Thierry Boots, somebody drove for you in 93, obviously took over a, a car that wasn't designed for a driver of, of his height because he was just over six foot, wasn't he? And I remember him complaining at the time about barely having a, a seat in there and, and that kind of thing. So how challenging is it when you've got a, a driver who's a, a geometric issue, should we say? Well, yeah, you've always got a challenge. Um, at that point in time, you always wanted to build the cars as small as possible. Um, you still do, but the regulations interfere with that now. Um, the Bertram Gashio from day one with us with the Jordan 191. I mean, Bertram was, was a compact fit. Um, we even come up with a little cheat that we tested one time to, to try and see it because or try and uh, optimise it because... Um, it was one of those sort of situations where getting the pedals, the balance across the pedals was, was bad. You, you still towed and heated in those days with your um, gearbox. So you wanted the brake pedal. So whenever you're on the brake pedal, it was sort of under pressure. It was level with the throttle pedal. Um, but that meant the brake pedal had to be a bit further back for him for comfort. So we actually did a little bit of a, a hydraulic cylinder on the, on the um, throttle cable so that when you started the engine, the throttle pedal went forward by about 15 millimetres just to give that offset in the pedals. When the engine was stopped, the pedal came came back to its original position because it had no oil pressure driving this little cylinder. But we never ever used a race meeting. It was just to see if it would uh, improve his comfort level, but it didn't really do much for him. So I'd go to um, Terry Bootson. You know, whenever he came to us, he was very tall for that car. The 93 car was a, was a fairly compact design. And... Um, it was it was done around Ivan Capelli and, and Rubens Barrichello initially, so you know they weren't exactly uh, tall drivers. And Terry struggled to get into the car. At that time, we were playing around with electronic shift, but we were having reliability problems. So we we used a manual shift on Terry's car for his first race in um, in, Bar- in uh, Donington. And to be honest, you know he didn't fit the car. Uh, and he didn't fit the car in testing. He was just squeezed into there. He, you know, had to sort of twist his body to reach for the gear lever, and you know, it was, it was horrible, really, to be honest. But the, the problem was that was the best race he did for us because after that we actually did, modified the seat back. You know, got his bum back a little bit, got his elbows. He had space for his elbows and stuff like that, and made him a lot more comfortable in the car. And he himself would say that a lot more comfortable in the car, and he was a lot more comfortable. And he, you know, the performance then dropped away dramatically. And I, I never really understood that, to be honest, because the difference was night and day from what he drove in Donington to what he drove at the next race. And and his performance just got worse. So, uh, yeah, there's always compromises, I think, in fitting the driver in the car, where you put all the stuff, all the bits and pieces, all the electrical boxes, the fire extinguishers, you know, they all go in there somewhere. And um, you just got to start with that. And that's why it's so important from the beginning to know who your driver is, to be honest. You know, Mercedes don't have that driver popping up, you know, just before the first race um, after they've paid their money to you. They've, they've known their drivers. They can co- accommodate their drivers. They know that they're doing it for the right reasons because of the driver likes this or likes that. And I think they've just tripped up on this one where they, 
if, if what Lewis is saying is really true, um, the fact that you know him sitting that bit forward is detrimental to him getting the best out of the car. I don't think so personally. I think it might be a very very small percentage to that problem, but he needs to focus on just the actual car and the setup and try to get the best out of it to suit that. And I think if he does that, they will get there. And I think Australia showed that they, they did get there. So as a final question on that, do you think we'll just see everybody charging towards positioning the cockpit the same as Red Bull, just on the rule of everything Red Bull's doing must be exactly right, given their car's so strong? Or, or do you think it's not quite that straightforward? It sounds like it's not exactly going to be the magic bullet, let's put it that way. No, it's not that straightforward at all. You know, we, you just got to look at the differences between uh, Verstappen and Perez. You know, they, they've they got the same cockpit. One guy is, you know, very tall and one guy is quite small. Um, so they can, they can, Perez can sit wherever he wants to sit. And maybe he's sitting in the wrong place, but he could he could sit wherever he wants to sit. The, the, Adrian Newey, like myself, he will always position the driver's helmet around the headrest area and the, um, you know, the air intake, all that stuff. And that, means that you know basically the driver's torso his bum and his back and his head is sitting in the same sort of place aerodynamically it's the best thing to do and it's through his bum that he feels those things so the the pedals and lewis's and uh, perez's car would be closer to to this you know closer to him than than they would be uh for for Stappen. but i don't think you'll see everybody copying the red bull as far as it's concerned but i think it will be something that people will will because of Red Lewis's comments, I think it'll be some of the people who go, ah, oh, I wonder. You know, they'll think about it more, a, a little bit more in the future as to what they're trying to achieve. And they won't just, you know, randomly move the, the driver forward that little bit. But um, as I say, one of the biggest car advantages is is that little gap to the chassis. Just getting that little bit bigger um, is, as I say, it's minuscule improvement, but you've got to take all these little steps now when we're talking about things being as close as they are all those little steps make, make a difference. As a listener to this podcast, you'll understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. There's no limits on these questions, provided they're at least vaguely connected to the world of F1 tech. If you do have a question, please send it to podcasts at therace.com. You can either write it or record a voice note and send it to us and we'll include the clip in it. And if you do that, make sure you tell us your name when you record it. Our first question today is from Mace from North California. It was a two-part question, so we'll we'll split this in half. So the first question, Gary, is you often refer to points of downforce. What are points measured in? Pounds, kilos, atmospheres? Well, very, very seldom I refer to points of downforce because it's something that I've never really been um, comfortable with. You know, points of downforce is, is the, the common game for... A team saying we've gained three points, ten points, twenty points of downforce without actually giving out a number to anybody. Um, I've always liked to deal in well pounds, kilograms, a load, because for me speaking to the driver for a start, it's it's so much easier for them to understand what you're talking about. If we gained ten kilograms of downforce, you know, um, we we always did our testing, or most teams always do their, did their testing. Um, at, at a fixed speed so all the wind tunnel data as such would be gathered and theoret- uh, put in a theoretical number at 240 kilometers an hour or 150 miles an hour because that was sort of Mr. Average track speed that you were working with 
and then from there on in, it's down to you know extrapolating that number at the square of the speed and so on and so forth. So you uh, you end up with a number. And I could go to the driver and say, you know, we found 10 kilograms of downforce at um, at uh, 240 k's um, for no drag. The car is now more efficient, which is what you want. You want the maximum downforce, the minimum drag. The car is now more efficient, and the driver could sort of relate to that 10 kilograms of downforce. Because it's a bit like um, when you put 10 kilograms of fuel in, you know, okay, the, the, the mass is different. The car goes slower because of the fuel load, because it's got more lateral force. So if you could put 10 kilograms of fuel in the car and you could put uh, 10 kilograms more downforce in the car at the same time for no drag, you would actually do the same lap time. So if you want to take that as an equation, 10 kilograms of downforce on a car at 240 k's should be two or three tenths of a lap faster. Um, 10 kilograms of fuel in the car will be two or three tenths of a second slower. So those two sort of could relate. And you could relate to the driver and tell him these things. And, you know, it was a number in space. It didn't always work out like that because obviously aerodynamic characteristics change how that works. It might not work at every speed and every ride height and stuff. But it was a better guide, I think, than, than saying I got two points down for us because I never really understood what that meant. And the drivers understood it even less. So for me, kilograms of downforce and even drag is a good solution because you, you in your head you work out in the driver's head they can work out what x kilograms of downforce gives them in lap time and what x kilograms of drag would give them as far as speed change is concerned so uh, yeah I prefer kilograms and Mace's second question is I was shocked to hear you say downforce increases by the square of the speed whereas drag increases by the cube could you explain why this is it makes it even more clear the challenge of balancing downforce and drag um, yeah, I can. Um, well, downforce increases by the square of the speed and drag increases by the square of the speed. Um, the power required to overcome a drag increase is at the cube of the speed. So, you know, you need more power relatively the faster you're going as the drag is going up. And, you know, whenever we sort of see these cars, they, they get to a terminal velocity, let's say. Um, not often, but they do get to a terminal velocity at a lot of circuits, like Monza. They'll sit there at 350 k's because X power against X drag, that's it. Now, if you decrease the drag, that, that fraction, you will go relatively faster than you will, let's say, around Monaco. Monaco, you're still accelerating. So your power requirement is, is critical against the drag. Um, the balance that you would always work out is, it depends on every circuit, is you know, cornering ability against straight line speed. Now, straight line speed is not just the top speed. Drag works all the way from the corner to the maximum speed. So it's, the drag is working all the way as you accelerate down a straight. And that's, you know, where you don't need the drag, you want to get rid of it. That's why you you would open the DRS immediately come out of the corner because you don't need it and they don't need the downforce anymore so you get rid of as much drag as possible as quickly as possible the same with deploying the, the electrical power you would deploy that a lot of teams would deploy that very early so they accelerate faster to a certain speed and then they keep that speed for longer now that's all about the uh, simulation that you do to see which is the, what's the best solution for a given lap time you want to get the optimum out of it some circuits it might be that you want to keep your electrical power to right at the end of the straight and deploy it so you can just gain that little bit more speed. Um, so it's it's not quite as black and white as saying it's it's very complicated to to balance the downforce to drag. It, it it's always been very difficult to get that compromise right. But as I say, the 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 downforce increases by the square of the speed. The drag increases with that, but the power required if you have more drag 
it takes, it takes more of a power step. So it's all part of a big, big package of bits that's in the air and put into a simulator to end up saying, right, this is where we think we are with this setup. This is what this is what you should put in the car to start with and then go from there. And this is the two directions. You might take a little bit of downforce off, you'll go a little fraction slower through the corners uh, and you'll gain on the straights and vice versa. Um, and that's why we see, you know, the three sections of the track that we see, um, you know, one car will be quicker in a corner and a, a bendy section and one car will be quicker in a... In a a part of the track that's faster because they've got the compromise just that little bit different it's not wrong it just suits them that compromise they've got and we see it with the williams you know it's very good and very very efficient um it's got you know it's a low drag car but with that comes the fact that it's not really the highest downforce car either so it's all about that uh, that compromise and we've got a second question asker this week, who's Leonardo from Torino, or Turin in the anglicised version. Leonardo says, if you gave the Red Bull car to any of the 20 drivers, could all of them seriously fight for the title? Now, Gary, that's a not directly technical question, but I guess it, it is insofar as the driver's a big part of, of the car, and this is about car performance. So what do you think? Well, it's one of those difficult situations to sort of analyse because we'll never see it. I've always said I'd love to see a, a, a GP2 race at the end of the season where, where the drivers get a day in the car with the relative teams and um, you know they're all in, in, in the car with the same opportunity. Formula 1 cars, they're built through time um, with the, 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 the trend that the, the driver that's in that car wants. You know, at the minute, you know, Lewis Hamilton for example, in the Mercedes, he's complaining about his cockpit position. But, you know, because of this situation that we have with the, with the cost cap rules and stuff, their technical director, James Allison, has moved on to greater things and another technical director has come in. So they might have missed a past bit of history where Lewis said something about that at one point in time. You know, and, and suddenly somebody new coming in. It's like me going in there and sort of starting to design and build a new car. I've had no history with Lewis, so I would... You know, I, I try to put my best foot forward. And that can happen very easily. Whereas if you really have continuity, and again, I take these sort of things like Red Bull, stupidly, uh, and Max Verstappen, and um, Adrian Newey, and you know, even Christian Horner to that extent, continuity, continuity, it's such a big thing to keep that going because you learn all these lessons and somebody new dropping in there will hmm, they'll go a different direction for sure. Because that's what you do. Um, you know, if another driver jumps into the car, getting back to the, the question, really, if another driver jumps into the car, he will not necessarily want what Max Verstappen wants. And that's, that's what we see with Sergio Perez. But who would you focus on if you were, if you were Adrian Newey? You would obviously focus on Max Verstappen because you know if you give him, you know, the potential of a hundredth of a second, he'll turn that into a tenth somehow. So I don't think you could put all 20 drivers in the same car into Red Bull, for example, and they'd all go and be world championship contenders. I think it's more to it than that. The relationship through time and the continuity is a big, big part of it. So they're all in what they're in now. I think it'll be impossible to actually ever see that happening. Uh, I don't think they'd be world championship contenders. Would they be better? Well, we've seen it through the years. You know, somebody jumps from a Toro Rosso into a Red Bull, as we've seen in quite a few occasions, they do go better. The car is better because, obviously, the budget, the whole thing, the technology, the people around it, they're all better. Yes, everybody would go a little bit better, and the grid would probably close up a bit more. 
but I think we still see the same trend right through the the, uh, the whole package as, as to where they are right now. Well, I think what your answer there really hits on is the fact that there's always this debate about whether it's car or driver, and they're both separate components, if you see what I mean. The, the car has a certain performance potential, and the driver has to extract that performance potential. So they're, they're kind of two separate parts of the process. And then the driver has the potential to increase the performance potential of the car with their with their inputs and the car can be changed in order to increase the performance potential of the driver through the dynamics so it's kind of a virtuous circle isn't it yeah it is a virtual circle and you know that's what i said the continuity is critically important from you know from every member of the team down to the guy who prepares the tires you know he there is a you know a routine set in place there but it's you know it's it's just that route exploiting that route into this maximum, and it's the same with the, with the driver getting into the car. He he goes out there first couple of corners. He's looking for someone from that car, and if if he feels that you know if he feels that feedback that he needs, then suddenly he gets almost a little bit better. So it's it is just about about just not trying to reinvent the wheel. I suppose you might call it just making sure the driver gets what he needs out of the car. From a design point of view, that is, making sure that the driver gets what he needs out of the car. And if you go from there, then the driver can exploit his talents. And all the drivers on the grid, the 20 drivers on the, on the grid, are hugely talented. Well, you know, quite a few of them are hugely talented. Um, I think it's probably as, as highly talented a grid as we've seen, to be honest, in a long, long time now. Um, taking all 20 cars so they're all there they're all they're all good guys you know they're all people and and i'm sure they would all benefit from getting into a a better car but the drivers that are in that better car have made that car better and that's what they're you know that's why it's a better car because the drivers that are in it have made it a better car so you don't just jump into it and get a freebie at any time yeah, it is a, an endlessly interesting question, that one. Of course, we should know only 34 drivers have ever won the World Championship and many more have had the machinery to fight for it. So uh, those, I think, who would argue it's automatically an easy ride if you're in, in the strongest car or what's seen as the strongest car, I think is uh, slightly oversimplifying. Well, thanks to Mace and Leonardo for those excellent questions. Remember, if you want to be like Mace and Leonardo and have your questions answered, send them to podcasts at theRace.com. That's podcasts at the-race.com. And remember, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, thanks very much to Gary Anderson for putting up with yet more of my stupid questions. We'll be back in two weeks with more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.